is it you haven't seen the god song psycho? Bro, you have seen Taxi Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. And t- today with me, my guest is Will from Exploding Helicopter. How are you doing today? I'm really good today, thank you. All right, and uh, as usual, why don't you go ahead and, and tell tell us a little bit about yourself and about your site. Okay, so I run a uh, film blog called Exploding Helicopter, and uh, um, basically we look to, uh, through the blog, we look to celebrate the art of um, uh, helicopters being exploded in movies. Uh, might not be something that you've uh, really thought about a lot, but um, once you start, start noticing them in films, um, they're actually quite a uh, quite a common phenomena. And uh, actually, their helicopters are exploded in some really sort of bizarre, strange, and unique ways. And so, um, through the blog, we look to kind of uh, document and record um, all the different ways that um, helicopters are exploded, and uh, we look to kind of like celebrate the the films which um, really sort of go the extra mile to uh, bring some extra creativity to uh, the art of uh, helicopter explosion and uh, we're not adverse to uh, pointing the uh, pointing the finger at directors who uh, dishonor the art through some sort of lazy and uh, unimaginative uh, sort of uh, shop of fireballs like stock footage stock footage or the one the the kind of the real cheat that we really hate to see is uh, uh, tends to be where sort of like a, a sort of critically damaged helicopter will sort of disappear behind a tree line or a or a ridge um, and then you'll sort of hear a, a, or hear a sort of explosion or see a cloud of uh, smoke sort of come up from behind the building or behind the uh, behind the hill or something and uh, you kind of know they haven't really destroyed that uh, that helicopter because they're sort of too cheap to uh, they're skimping on the pyrotechnics yeah, and one thing I was kind of curious um, is what is the the most surprising movie that has a helicopter explosion so that you've covered on your site so far? Oh, um, oh, that's a really good question. I'm probably going off the top of my head. I'll probably kick myself later, but off the top of my head, I'm going to say um, the Steven Spielberg film Munich. Um, which um, I actually sat down to watch because I just thought I really just want to watch a film um, that doesn't doesn't have an exploding helicopter. I just want to sit down and watch and enjoy uh, enjoy a film. So I sat down to watch it, and then you know to my horror there was a, there was an exploding helicopter in there. So I was sort of then duty bound to uh, to uh, to sort of report on it. But the the the, the actual scene is very strange um, and is you know is a unique one because it takes place. Um, during um, uh, a sex scene where sort of uh, Eric Banner is uh, uh, traumatized, uh, he's traumatized by sort of the all of the all of the violence that he's seen and committed um, sort of throughout the film, and he's then sort of finally reunited with his wife, and um, he's uh, he's uh, let's say getting to know her again, and um, he uh, and then he whilst he's uh, whilst he's uh, on the job, he has a flashback to uh, to kind of like a, a sort of commando assault at an airport, uh, and um, the uh, let, let's just say the two scenes climax at the same time. Um, <laughs> it's really, really bizarre. Really bizarre. Yeah, that that sounds pretty weird. Yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely a fan of the concept of your site because it's like whenever I started my own site, I wanted to go for something like even though there are a few sites out there that that do cover comic book and superhero movies like mine does there's not very many but with with you i'm pretty sure you're the only site out there that that specifically caters to exploding uh, helicopters 
I think we, um, I think we are the. Uh, I'm pretty certain we are the only, uh, the only blog out there. Um, uh, I quite like having the, uh, I quite like having the field to myself. But you know, if others want to, if other wants, others want to get involved, um, you know, I think there's enough. There's certainly enough um, exploding helicopter movies to go around. So uh, I wouldn't be uh, adverse to sort of other people sort of uh, coming into, uh, coming into the field. Yeah. Um, and then, as always, I, I have some uh, film-related questions to, to get to know your movie-watching habits. So what are three films that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet? Okay, so the first film I'm, I'm going to select um, is a film called uh, Predator and uh, starring uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's um, a classic um, 80s action movie. Um, and um, I saw it when I was a kid and it just was like, it, to me at the time, it was like the most gripping film I'd um, ever seen. And that feeling hasn't really worn off. Um, and, I, and I think it's actually, um, I wouldn't just say it's a case of... Um, sort of it being a sort of childhood memory i think it is a genuinely um great action movie and um you know john mctiernan gets a lot of plaudits for um die hard which was the film that he directed um after this but um you know for me predator is perhaps not as good as die hard but it is really really up there in terms of um in terms of uh, action cinema um second film i'm going to pick is a, a 60s spy thriller called um the ip chris file um it's really stylishly directed by uh, a director called sydney j fury and it's got a, an absolutely marvellous score by John Barry. And uh, Michael Caine is the star of that film. And he gives um, a great performance. And it's a, it's a really interesting film in the sense that um, it's a real counterpoint to the Bond films. And... Um, you know where they were set in glamorous locations. This one, these ones are are set in very sort of dour, gritty uh, locations. And um, uh, uh, and you know whereas uh, whereas uh, Sean Connery was a kind of uh, was sort of going against the wishes of his bosses. He was a bit of a sort of uh, bit of a rogue. Here, Michael Caine is just sort of uh, like really under the thumb of his his bosses and um, sort of really sort of feels the full, full weight of uh, the sort of bureaucracy that's uh, on top of him. Um, that sounds pretty interesting. That's one that I actually haven't heard of. About when when did that one come out? That came out in uh, 1965, um, yeah. and it was ma- it was made by the uh, producers of the. Uh, it was made by. Um, uh, uh, Saltzman, who was one of the, who with Cubby Broccoli was one of the producers of the Bond films. So it's very interesting that, um, that, uh, you know, having made these kind of, um, having made one end of the, like the really glamorous end of the spy film genre, he then sort of, right, okay, I'm going to kind of completely flip it on its head and, and do something that really sort of counterpoints him. Yeah. Whenever you were talking about it, uh, I know you mentioned Michael Caine and, and of course now we're familiar with Michael Caine as being the, kind of an older man but the way you were talking about it definitely sounded like it was him in his uh, younger days it was pretty much it was pretty much the film which um it was one of his breakout roles it was um i think it it may well have been the first um time that he was like the lead in a film he was in a big film called zulu but he was sort of uh second build in that film um so this was his kind of um sort of step up to uh being a sort of leading man sounds neat um, the last film I'm going to uh, I'd choose is um, is a uh, is Le Samurai, which is a French um, crime thriller um, directed by this guy called Jean-Pierre Melville, and I'm a massive fan of film noir. And um, Jean-Pierre Melville made um, some fantastic um, crime films through the 1960s, which um, if you're a fan of film noir, you really got to see his films because he takes the sort of the he takes the essence of film noir and just boils it down to like it's these like individual components and he just creates this 
sort of noir universe which um uh is is just um i it's just is just is magical and i kind of i've his his films i i just watch them over and over again um and you know i could pick three or four really um here but uh sort of le samurai is probably the one which um, where i really f- sort of fell in love with his work um and um yeah just i never get bored of watching that film it's got alan delon in um uh, who gives this incredible um impassive performance but he's absolutely spellbinding um in that film um and if you get the chance really recommend seeing it yeah i'm i'm a fan of uh film noir myself so that yeah that sounds pretty cool Alright, and then um, what is your favorite film that you've only seen once? Um, so the, my favorite film that I've only seen once was a film I saw, um, very lucky to see it in a cinema, um, in repertory. It was a 1939 film called uh, The Women. Um, and it's just all about um, the sort of interconnected lives of a whole group of women. And it's got an absolutely stellar cast. It's got Joan Crawford in, Norma Shearer, uh, Joan Fontaine. It's got Rosalind Russell. Um, and it's really um, it's really funny. It's really witty. Um, and it's just a, a, just a great, great film. And criminally not available on, on DVD. Um, it was remade in 2008 with uh, Meg Ryan um, and uh, Eva Mendes. Um, but um, whilst the version I saw is a classic, uh, the, from all reports, the, the remake uh, is uh, nowhere near its league. Um, so I wish uh, they'd put the money into uh, reissuing that film on DVD rather than uh, remaking it. Yeah, that, that tends to happen a lot. And uh, what is your favorite genre of movies? So I've already um, I've already sort of alluded to the fact that I'm a kind of massive fan of film noir, and I think um, it's it's film noir that um, that I would I'd plump for. I, I started watching those films when I was uh, when I was a teenager, and um, just something about um, just something about the the dark visuals, the kind of individuals um, being um, sort of uh, helpless in helpless in the face of a sort of uh, a sort of an irrational universe, kind of um, this sort of idea of um, uh, your fate being sort of predetermined and you just have to sort of move towards it and your sort of powerlessness in it just had it just sort of spoke to me and um, sort of at that time and um just it hasn't faded and i've just sort of continued to sort of uh try and watch more and more of these uh more and more of these films and um one thing i one thing i sort of really another thing i really like about film noirs is that um um you know you there's often sort of themes or issues that are smuggled into them because they were sort of cheap films that were sort of made out maybe B films or sort of films that studios were making to kind of um, sort of uh, uh, pad out um, sort of as second features. And there's often sort of interesting sort of things going on within the films which you know directors or producers wouldn't be able to kind of get away with in uh, in uh, bigger pictures. And um, uh, so they're they're also sort of interesting. Um, to sort of watch um, from that perspective, because obviously the making films in the 40s is very different to now in terms of you know what you were permitted, what you're permitted to show, what you're permitted mm-hmm. to say. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't watch a lot of classics, but I am slightly familiar with with the the Hayes Code, which uh, brought about a lot of censorship back then. Yeah, I've um, 
it's really interesting actually i've seen a few films from um just prior to um prior to the Hayes code and actually watched one the other day which is a very famous film um king kong um which was made just prior to the code and um you know it's really striking in in that film i was watching it um and i was like wow that's you know that's actually quite there's some um there's some deaths in that scene which you know they're not they're not gory they're not anything like they are today but for a film um of that vintage to sort of to see you know normally films from the 30s are, are so um like anaesthetized in terms of like what you can show and um yeah uh king kong really interesting example of kind of like a pre-code film and and sort of what um what uh what people i guess why why the code was in why the code was introduced um so not because it's that such shocking today but um yeah just very surprising to sort of see um sort of a, a film of that vintage with the kind of you know a certain level of um more realness um than you sort of typically see mm-hmm. All right, and and of course I ask everyone, what's your favorite superhero movie? Um, this might be this might be quite a boring choice, but um, it, it it is. I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pump for the for the uh, the original Superman movie um, in the 1970s, and um, I saw it when I was when I was very young. I don't know, maybe six or seven, and. Um, just um i think for the, the music um just the, the the it just it just i just remember it as being a very bright film like the colors and um the fact that you sort of see superman's journey from being um from being a, a, a child through to being a being an adult um you know when you're when you see it as young as i did you i think there's a you, that's a way into a uh, way into a character that you sort of maybe don't see in other uh other superhero movies where i don't know something you know some, some an event happens to somebody and then they they have these um then they have these sort of amazing powers um whereas whereas here you sort of you can kind of um yeah as I say it provides a sort of way into the way into empathizing with the with the character um and uh yeah just uh it was a film that i then sort of then watched sort of over and over again on on video when i was when i was a kid and so it probably is my favorite superhero movie for that reason yeah it's it's hard to top and and it is one of the like easily the the two most popular answers whenever i ask that question is superman the movie and uh the dark knight uh, okay which i yeah. i think i think a lot of it speaks to like the the age range because mm. I, I think especially if you saw uh, Superman the movie when it came out, whenever you were a kid, then that's always going to stick with you more than anything that's came out in the past 15, 20 years. And I think also that the thing with with I think with Superman, um, it's interesting to sort of watch the other superheroes since then, because even if it, I think it sort of set a template for how to do um, superhero movies. And then even if films don't like even if films decide to sort of rip up that template, it's because you know it's even they're, they're bit they're almost defined even though they're not copying superman they're defined in opposition to superman the movie so mm-hmm. it kind of you know whatever they're doing it all comes back to it, i don't know it all seems to sort of come back to that that film yeah and then finally what would you say is your biggest film wise a uh, film that you haven't seen yet that, that you feel like you should or just one that you'd really want to see but haven't gotten around to yet um, so I thought about this question and I think it's probably, I'm probably going to say, um, Toy Story. Um, and to be honest, you could add into Toy Story, there's sort of that whole sort of Pixar sort of Disney animation features. I haven't seen Toy Story. I haven't seen Shrek. I haven't seen The Incredibles. Um, I, it's not that I've got something against animation. I, I just, 
I don't know if it, it, when I look when I look at when I go to something to watch, I always seem to choose uh, choose something else. And um, they're obviously huge films. They've they've won Oscars. They've made loads of money. They're very critically lauded. And um, I think uh, that uh, you know when I'm sort of talking to people about sort of films, they'll sort of mention one or other of those kind of like canon of animation films, and I always have to sort of look look blankly at them. And uh, they go, you know, what do you, what do you mean you've never seen that one? And uh, yeah, I have to. Uh, so it's a massive gaping hole in my sort of cinematic CV. Yeah, I'm I'm a, a big fan of animation in general, at least like especially those like the Pixar's and um, the the animated films that they don't strictly take a page from like Japanese animation, but it's definitely animation that's made for kids and for adults. It's not just animation made for kids, which there's plenty of that out there as well. But uh, any of these animated movies that are made for kids and made for adults are really well-made stories and they're worth watching. And and they're, they're not, they're not something that that's really worth like dismissing as an animation movie. So yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely encourage you to to check some of those out whenever you get the chance, and, and especially The Incredibles, like that. That's that's a really great movie in and of, in and of itself. Well, I'll tell you what. I promise. The next time I see that it's on, I will I will watch that come hell or high water. <laughs> All right, and uh, and of course. Uh, the movies out of the movies that uh, we're covering today, the the one that you had me watch for the first time is Double Indemnity. It all began last May. The gold mask. Oh, incredible! How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. What's your plan? To follow them until I find out where the mask is. You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. I want to know where Cobras is hiding the mask. I don't know. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. Yeah, double double indemnity um, is um, so. As I sort of mentioned, I'm a massive fan of um, film noir, and um, double indemnity is is possibly sort of um, in the in the top two or three film noirs which um, have ever been made. And um, you know, uh, if you're going to sort of watch one film noir, then um, there's very good reasons to to make it um, double indemnity. It was made in 1944 um, and directed by uh, Billy Wilder. And it tells the story of an insurance salesman called uh, uh, Walter Neff, who's played by Fred McMurray, um, and he falls um, for um, uh, sort of the, the wife of a wealthy uh, wealthy businessman, um, and uh, the, the the wife is played by uh, Barbara Stanwyck, and uh, together they plot to kill her husband um, in order to claim the uh, life insurance policy that uh, they've taken out in secret um, on his life, um, and the sort of the the title comes from the fact that uh, they decide to take a kind of uh, very risky strategy with uh, bumping off the husband by uh, trying to do it uh, in a very unusual way which uh, triggers a kind of secret clause um, in the in the uh, life insurance policy which means it'll pay out double 
Um, obviously, uh, as this is film noir and as this is the sort of 1940s cinema, I'm not giving anything away to say that uh, this plan doesn't go um, doesn't go uh, particularly well. And um, slowly, um, uh, uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck find um, that the kind of the, the finger of suspicion is is sort of uh, pointing towards them, and they find the uh, the sort of the forces of officialdom sort of closing um, in on them, which puts their relationship under sort of uh, increasing pressure and stress um and then that creates uh that creates some uh some some really good tension towards uh towards the end of the film as the as their sort of uh, as their relationship and as their as their plan starts to sort of uh crumble uh underneath them um sort of the film benefits from uh, some really great performances a really great um score from Nicholas rosa and um uh billy wilder is a is a fantastic director and um as I say, it's one of my favourite films. It's, I think it's one of the greatest film noirs, and that's uh, why I was so keen for uh, for you to uh, to uh, fill this hole on your film wise list. Yeah, well, I, I did quite enjoy it. I've I've seen one other um, Billy Wilder movie, which was the the second episode of this podcast. I watched Sunset Boulevard, and it, and that was a, a great movie, and, and and this one was as well, even. Even though I I did have just a few like kind of minor issues with it, but overall I, I really enjoyed. It. I I thought it was really tense, and the uh, the plot was really um, well structured. Um, like the the tension really ramps up, and and I really um, thought all the all the characters were very interesting, like especially Fred McMurray. I thought he was a, a great, great leading man. Even though one of, like one of the first kind of things that that comes to mind whenever I watch a movie in this era is one of the gags from Family Guy, um, the uh, high pants fast talker. <laughs> Well, I think um, Fred McMurray, I think, um, is uh, is very, very good in this film. Um, he, um, um, I think, he, he gives a very um, un- he gives a very understated, um, underplays his role, um, and I think that that's um, I think that that is, was a, a really um, sort of uh, sort of good decision by him. And um, uh, he was um, somebody he was quite um, uh, unusual casting for this film because um, previously to sort of Dublin Indemnity, he'd basically been in um, romantic comedies. He was a big um, sort of uh, player in in that genre, and so this was the sort of first time that he sort of moved into kind of um, um, thrillers, playing um, you know a, a man who you know just sort of really kind of um, you know abandons um, abandons all morals um, you know for 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 a, for a money and for for a woman. Um, so some you know it's quite um, uh, clever sort of. Well, I don't know how clever the casting was because if you sort of uh, sort of read a bit about the film, there were quite a few actors that Wilder tried to get to um, to kind of get to play this role, and um, it seems Fred McMurray was kind of like sort of down that, or down on that list. But um, yeah, he, I was he, he reading. A great performance. Yeah, I was reading the trivia, and, it, and it, a lot of it is about a large list of actors that turned the role down before they ended up with Fred McMurray. And I also thought it was kind of interesting, it, it, even though I didn't watch it. Even though I didn't watch it, I thought it was interesting that he played the dad in My Three Sons later on in his career. And, and I would imagine that a lot of people know Fred McMurray most from that show. 
Yeah, he's um, yeah, he's uh, somebody who's uh, whose career kind of uh, yeah, he went back to kind of like playing these sort of um, sort of much lighter lighter roles um, sort of after this. Although he does sort of crop up in a, in a couple of other um, film noirs, but none really um, none really as as good as this. And um, he gives a very good um, the he gives a, he he uh, Fred McMurray also narrates um, narrates the film and um, he um, delivers uh, he delivers the narration um i think really beautifully um in this film and i think that really um creates this um really intimate atmosphere with uh, with the audience which really sort of intensifies um the way that he gets kind of sucked into this uh into this murder plot and um that like you feel like you're you're sort of really with him as this as the kind of the as the sort of circle closes in around him um as the film progresses yeah i i think that works as well in this one just like just similarly the way that it does in Sunset Boulevard how how that opens with the the narration with the main character in the pool face down and and this one even though you don't know at the time but he's got a uh, a um, bullet wound that he's that he has that's uh, that he's bleeding out from while he's recording this what he doesn't want to call refer to as a confession to his boss uh, keys. What did you uh, What did you make of um, of uh, Barbara Stanwyck's uh, performance in this uh, in this film? Uh, I I thought Bar- Barbara Stanwyck did did a pretty good job. Um, it's it's kind of interesting whenever you look back on it because at at the beginning you don't really you see him falling for her and he's the one that that's. Uh, basically comes up with the whole murder plots but at the end you find out that that it really was in her head the entire time because you find out that that she actually killed um his her husband's first wife and she was the nurse and her and his daughter um had suspicions about that even back then yeah, there's a fantastic scene. Um, uh, well, I, th- I think it's really great at, um, at the end of the, at the end of the film when um, uh, Stanwyck and uh, McMurray um, sort of have their sort of final final meeting, and um, uh, that uh, um, you know that uh, sort of Stanwyck finally declares her sort of love for uh, Fred McMurray, but only but only um, after she's shot him, and um, and only and only because. She she says, oh, I kind of knew that I loved you because I couldn't shoot you for a second time, which I just thought was, you know, is absolutely what a, what a, what a, what a hell of a declaration of love that is. Yeah, even though that that at least in my eyes that that seems interesting, but it also suffers a bit just just due to like the special effects because you just you hear the bullet go off and. They say that she shot her, but there's no real visual clue that she actually did shoot her. Mm. And it, it's not even until the very end, whenever you, you start getting the blood stain in his shoulder. It's like, I, I had no... It's like, where did she even shoot her? He, he like holds his arm for a second, and then... Um, so I thought maybe she shot him in the arm, which doesn't seem like a, a uh, critical well, wound. 
Yeah, that is kind of um, I've I've watched this film with other people, and um, you do um, you know you've got to blame the got to blame censorship in the 1940s for that mm-hmm. because you're uh, I've watched this film with other people, and um, unless you're fairly eagle-eyed um, in the beginning of the film, you you don't notice um, the bullet wound um, that's in um, Fred McMurray's um, sort of shoulder, um, and like if you don't notice that from the beginning, then like you're kind of um, you're off to a bad start with sort of understanding where the film where the film sort of going um so yeah that's uh very uh you know very frustrating when you know it's just um you know why can't they just sort of show a bit more uh, a bit more blood you know we don't need to go down uh, into sore territory uh but we could just sort of make it a bit clearer that he has actually sort of suffered a you know kind of bad uh, bullet wound yeah i mean like i i could tell that he was in rough shape um and he, he talks about, uh, in his opening narration, which they also use in the trailer, that he says, um, no visible scars, that is until, until now. I think that's uh, that's one of the um, there's a lot of uh, that's one of many great lines which uh, which I think are in this film and um, the screenplay was um, well there's, there's, there's the sort of the this movie's got some absolutely what well, I think's got some absolutely um, sparkling dialogue in some really good sardonic um, one-liners and um, the, the the this book this film is based on a book by James M Kane who is who is one of the sort of great um, sort of hard-boiled tough crime writers of the of the 1930s and he also wrote um, Mildred Pierce and uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice, which were both made into kind of classic uh, film noirs. And then it was adapted um, for into a screenplay by Raymond Chandler, who um, presumably needs no no introduction. So uh, you, you you've got two of the great um, sort of crime writers plus Billy Wilder working on the script here and um you know some of the some of the narration some of the some of these sort of little little one liners that are in there um often very delivered very in a very low key way but that you know it's um you know a, a, a absolutely um uh, beautiful script and um it you know there's um, there's even some little kind of comedy one liners in there which um, even though I know they're coming I've watched this film a million times when I was rewatching it again for uh, for this podcast um, they're still making me laugh yeah, I, I really, I do really like a lot of the back and forth, especially early on in the relationship between uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. They they, they have some really great uh, back and forth with their like double entendres going going at it. That's one uh, of the great one of the great flirting scenes I think in uh, in films in uh, film history I think. Mm-hmm. And then I I also I thought it was really great the. Uh, uh, one of the other, I'm, I'm guessing that it's a, a, a more famous scene, the one in the hallway, whenever she's hiding behind the door. She comes in the yeah. hallway and she overhears keys inside the apartment discussing the um, the case. And then he goes out and she hides right behind the door and she gives uh, a little tug on the door to show, to uh, alert Fred McMurray that she's back there without saying anything and you can and it, it's really subtle but it's it's really well done how it's like you see her tug on the door and, and you see him just kind of turn his head a little bit and realize that she's back there and then there's that little bit of tension to, to wonder if keys will come back or or that he'll that something will happen that'll alert her presence to him 
it's a great it's a great it's a great little moment of um of uh where very little happens but it's really uh really simply done but it's play it's done beautifully and uh yeah it's a really sort of tense uh tense moment uh but if we're sort of talking about sort of kind of like barbara stanwick moments in the in the film there's the there's a very the, there's a very famous scene which um uh which she's done which uh is sort of is often sort of mentioned uh which is the the scene where they where uh fred mcmurray and barbara stanwick um kill her husband and um the 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 uh again because of the sort of the sort of hollywood censorship they can't show they can't show the murder so the uh it takes place in this car as uh that barbara stanwick's dri- uh, driving and the camera just um stays on her face uh, uh with Nicholas rose's score kind of um sort of coming through and um Barbara Stanwyck's face is uh, is just sort of fantastic in this in this scene and this it's just very subtle movements but you can sort of there is something there's a real bundling together there of 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 sex and violence there which um, is uh, really uh, really striking in a film of uh, of that period and um, is um, is striking even now just I think because of the way it's it's very subtle and underplayed and allows you the viewer to kind of read into the scene as to sort of what her feelings are at that particular moment mm-hmm. and and one other thing that I, that I really liked about this movie was was the actual uh setup and and follow through about the the actual uh, murder just how how um specifically everything was done and how it was set up and how it was carried off because i i know one of my favorite types of movies I I, I kind of refer to them as like a caper movie, and yep. this kind of falls along along those lines because things have have to happen in a specific way for them to carry it out and for it to get pulled off correctly. And for the most part, it does, even though there's a few hiccups. And it's not until afterwards when everything starts falling apart. But it, it's it I really enjoyed seeing how it came together. As, uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, there's some really good sort of, uh, like the, the minutiae of how, um, of how Fred McMurray kind of plots his alibi is, is quite, uh, is quite neatly done. And, um, yeah, as you say, the sort of the, the sort of the detail of, um, of how they then sort of do the murder, which is obviously quite important because that's how, um, sort of things start unraveling as, um, Edward G. Robinson, who's, uh, who's Fred McMurray's boss, um, at the insurance company starts sort of investigating what's happened here and you know those start those little details start sort of coming back to haunt Stanwyck and uh, and McMurray um but uh, you know as I'm uh, you know as a as a first time watcher to this film I'd be interested to sort of hear what you made of the relationship between um Fred McMurray um and um Edward G Robinson because um uh you know I've watched it quite a lot a lot of times and um you know I think there's um you know you can start reading some extra sort of dynamics into their relationship so I I uh wondered yeah I wondered what you made of it uh you know want to see if I'm barking up the wrong tree or not um well I, I don't know the the one thing I can like uh, if if they're if you're um, kind of referring to any sort of gay subtext, like I know there's the line at the end, which is interesting, but I I definitely didn't pick up on any of that sort of relationship. It definitely does seem um, like very open, like they they definitely get along well with each other, and, um, like the way that Edward G. Robinson 
is always talking about his little man, <laughs> <laughs> which is, is is a funny way to put it. It's a funny way to put it, especially if you think of it in terms of like double innuendos. But even though that's not what it is, but it still it still kind of gives it an extra level of humor that that I thought was funny. And and on top of that, something that I always like to bring up is. Um, that I'm a fan of The Simpsons, and I, one of the, the first trivia things that I noticed whenever I saw Edward G. Robinson's name is that uh, uh, police, police Chief Wiggum, his voice was created as basically a bad impersonation of Edward G. Robinson. So I, I kind of had that in the back of my mind while watching this as well. But yeah, I, I thought the, the relationship between them was, was interesting. Um, it seemed like because uh, there is that one point where Keys offers um, Neff the the desk job, which it, it's it's kind of funny the way that he puts it because it's like a it's a pay cut, but it's a, a better job somehow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think um, I think it would be reading far far too much into the, into the film to sort of like to say that there's some sort of um, uh, understated sort of gay relationship between them but there is there is definitely um there is definitely an, an extra sort of um like their relationship is a very i think very powerful force in in the film and like they do like a couple of times in the film actually sort of um you know fred mcmurray sort of says yeah i love you too um even though even in response to some sort of insult that uh, that um edward g robinson's made uh, to him uh, and um there's uh, there's obviously this sort of reciprocal kind of uh, there's the sort of little motif throughout the film of how um, Fred McMurray lights um, uh, Edward G. Robinson's cigar, which is then um, sort of like a gesture, which is then returned by Edward G. Robinson right at the end of the film when um, Fred McMurray kind of, um, you know, is uh, sort of about to be uh, about to be arrested. Um, and um, it's uh, this. I don't know. For me, it's like um, so. I think that, that I think the fact that that relationship is so strong between the characters, I think, really adds um, like an extra dynamic to the film because then it's um, you've then like beyond the sort of um, relationship between um, uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck, you've then got kind of like the betrayal of Fred McMurray's betrayal of his relationship with. Um, with Edward G. Robinson, I think, which I think adds uh, an extra um, sort of uh, dynamic to the film, and um, uh, it's kind of like there's a, there's a sort of third relationship in the film with you've got Fred McMurray, um, who as as the kind of like the whole plot is unraveling, has to sort of um, pretend to sort of. Um, sort of have a have a kind of um, it's not a romantic relationship, it's no, more like platonic, a, almost with almost uh, like with, a surrogate father. Yeah, yeah, with the with the daughter of uh, Nina. Nina, yeah, um, with the stepdaughter of uh, Barbara Stanwyck, and um, what I think's really um, what's really sort of um, uh, interesting about that relationship, if you counterpoint it with um, with uh, the relationship McMurray has with uh, Barbara Stanwyck, is that um, you know they 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 commit Barbara Stanwyck and McMurray commit this murder for love, but then they can't because they've done it, they then can't be together, and when they meet, it can only be in like really the bland environments of a of a sort. Of supermarket and then McMurray has to develop this sort of surrogate pair 
parent relationship with uh, with uh, with Nina, um, and they go they go to the beach, they go out to a restaurant. You know, he's having a they go out and uh, go out into like the hills and stuff. And you know, he has a much better relationship with with her than he does with um, you know with the with the woman he's supposed to be in love with. This, the woman that he's um, so it's kind of uh, I think it's great sort of like uh, you know the sort of noir moment where you know he's kind of committed this act, but then he's he's can't be with the woman he wants to be with and he's sort of trapped in this phony relationship with um with her stepdaughter and um uh i think uh, uh you know an, a, a kind of a, a sort of good example of how sort of um you know you can't um you know if you trans if you tra- in the world of film noir if you if you commit a transgression you know you you can't um, as they say in the film you know you're on the you're on the, the trolley to the end of the line yeah and and i think it's it is kind of interesting because like in all three of those re- in all three of those relationships, the murder is a betrayal um, to that relationship because mm. he's betraying Keys by doing this uh, insurance scam, which is costing the company money, and he's um, betraying Nina by killing her father. And in a way, he's he's and then at, at the end of the relationship, he betrays um, Barbara Stanwyck's character mm. by killing her. <laughs> but it's the the uh the Nina relationship that it, it seems like he goes the furthest towards repairing that relationship. Yeah, it's kind of um I think that that's also sort of um you know a moment where because she sort of seems to actually um actually sort of like him in in a in a genuine way and I think that you know that seems to make um you know that only makes matters worse for uh, for Fred McMurray because you know he knows that the whole her affection is is based on a complete lie because he's you know she's she's upset because her dad's just died and he's the man that killed her. Yeah. Killed him, and and he also and there's also that moment where he had the chance to to pin uh, Barbara Stanwyck's murder on Nino, but instead he sends Nino back to Nina. Yeah, so a kind of like a, a sort of a moment of um, a, a sort of moment of um, he's allowed a little redemption there at the uh, at the end of that at the end of that film. Yeah, he he has the redemption with Nin, uh with Nino, and then. He also has, and then the whole confession speech is more or less his redemption to Keys. Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, it, like all together, it's it's an it's a really well made movie. It's I, I really enjoyed it. And and one one thing that that you did mention that I I thought was interesting and and I kind of maybe over fixated on was the the way that he does light the matches just because that's that's something that that you don't see in this day and age just the way he he flicks the uh, he lights the match with the tip of his thumb. That's health and safety legislation for you. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and those matches, you can still get those, uh, like, uh, you know, matches. Strike anywhere matches. Yeah, you can still get them. But um, the way they're lighting them in that film, goodness knows what the what the like the tips are made of, because they're just like the laziest little stroke of the thumb, and the things are flaring up like a like a like a solar torch. Yeah, and he, and even Keys says that the reason that he doesn't get matches is because he always they always explode in his pocket. Well, if that's how easily they lie, I can well I can well imagine it. All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts about double indemnity? 
Um, I, uh, my final thoughts would be, I don't really have any final thoughts. I would just say, um, if you're interested in film noir, if you're interested in film, just go and watch, uh, just go and watch Double Indemnity. I think it's a, it's a great film and definitely reward, um, you know, uh, sitting down and watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break and then whenever we come back, we'll talk about the movie that I had you watch for the first time, The Puma Man. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. By the 21st century, fanboyism was the new faith of millions. Quality was judged by internet aggregates. The taste of 30-year-olds and 13-year-olds had become one. But then, suddenly... Quentin Tarantino's level of disrespect to the thinking viewer is truly amazing. The Dark Knight screenplay is like a 13-year-old Juggalos Joker fan fiction. It's not our job to validate people's bad opinions. Two voices emerged from the wilderness. An Alan Smithy podcast. Spoilers guaranteed. The Puma Man came out in 1980. It's it's an Italian film that was filmed in English and made for very little money. It's about this legend of the Aztec gods, who also might be aliens, who fathered the very first Puma Man many years ago. And now it's up to this giant Aztec shaman shaman named Vidino uh, to reveal the secrets of Puma Man to Tony, a paleontologist at the Natural History Museum in England. And meanwhile, there is a relic from the Aztecs, which is a mask that allows you to control people's minds, which has fallen into the hands of the villain Cobras. And this is one of, I would definitely say it's the worst movie that I've uh, covered here, but it's one of those that's so bad, it's good. Um, But before I get any farther into this, what did you think about Puma Man? Um, I would, uh, I have to absolutely agree with you in the, in when, in your description of this as a film that is, uh, so bad it's good. Um, so bad it's good is, uh, is a, you know, something, uh, a term that kind of gets attached to a lot of films which are, are often just plain bad. Um, but I think Pu- The Puma Man is definitely a film which, uh, which, uh, is, uh, so bad it's good. Um, the, the, the production values, the scripts, the acting, um, it's just, it's all there. The music, I mean, there isn't an element of this film which doesn't, um, which isn't bad, but it somehow all comes, to the, the sum of the parts are so, are so, the, so, so much greater as a whole. Um, it is, uh, it is, um, for, you know, it is, it is genuinely so bad it's good. <laughs> Yeah, let me, yeah, before we get any farther, let me, I I wrote down a list of all the powers of the Puma Man, Um, so he apparently, some of of the powers that he has as the Puma Man is, uh, he can land on his feet from long falls, like a Puma, his hands are like strong claws, like a Puma, Uh, he can see in the dark, like a puma, uh, he can sense danger. Like a puma, he can fly. <laughs> like a puma, <laughs> and he can walk through walls and teleport. You, you know, like a puma, and he can stop his heart and play dead. Uh, like a puma, <laughs> which I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. what else is there? Well, it's it is the most um, eclectic range of superpowers <laughs> I've I've ever seen um, in a in a film. Um, like some of them make sense, like the ability to um, fall from a third story window and land on your feet. Okay, I get that. He's the Puma Man. Cats land on their feet. Um, sensing danger, seeing in the dark. The kind of his hat, like the power of his hands, his claws. I kind of like you know I can buy into that. But then 
like if you know, I don't like the one where he can he can go through walls and um, and certainly power of flight. Um, <laughs> I do, st- you know, there is a complete disconnect between um, his uh, at that point between his kind of uh, his human man status and his uh, and his special powers. Uh, but uh, you know, credit to the film. You know, they kind of they could they might think the they 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 might be aware that the audience might be worrying about this, but they they decide you know what to hell with it. We won't we won't bother to explain why or how he can do um, any of this. Um, or the, well, the how, the how and the why is uh, is that is, is is his special belt, which um, yeah, that's as much explanation <laughs> as anyone needs. Well, I, I mean, they they do um, they do kind of explain it in the opening dar- narration, which like I I've seen this movie. This is the third time that I've seen it. I, I watched it at once about a year ago, back whenever I reviewed it for the first time for my site, and then I watched it immediately following with the uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 version, where they uh, make jokes throughout the movie about it, and uh, and then watching it again this this time, and I, I do notice things that a lot of people seem to miss because a lot of people. Because um, they they do explain in the opening narration that it was the Aztec gods that that are aliens basically, and they came down to Earth, and I guess one of them had uh, one of them found a human woman and had a son, and that was the first Puma Man. And now Tony is the descendant of that Puma Man, and his father was the Puma Man. And the other thing that a lot of people get wrong is that. Uh, in, which I, I see this, it's listed in the uh, IMDb description of the movie, and it's also in like the, the first review that came up, which is like a 10-star review for somebody that also appreciates the movie as the so-bad-it's-good movie that it is. But they both are uh, mistakenly under the impression that... Uh, um, well, in the beginning of the movie, they, they talk about there's a bunch of people that have been thrown out of windows to their deaths. Um and they are all Americans living in the UK, and they all have parents who died in a plane crash, <laughs> and, and they all have parents <laughs> that are uh, that were scientists. Which it's amazing that, that there's so many people <laughs> that fit that description. Um, that everyone seems to think that Vidinho is the one that threw them out the window, because he also does that to Tony. But it, uh, he actually pulls out a photograph of. Uh, Tony's parents and he said I didn't have to, to throw you out the window to know that you're the Puma Man because he, ha- he also has a line saying that he talked with his father so well, let me ask you did, did you think that it, it was Vidinho that was throwing all these people out of the windows until he found the Puma Man or did you I, catch that line too I, 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 I kind of I figured that uh, Vidinho wasn't chucking them out of uh, <laughs> wasn't chucking Americans out of uh, out of uh, windows um, uh, I'm, I'm glad that trend has now stopped in the UK um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope it doesn't start off <laughs> I hope it doesn't start up again. I, I really enjoyed the the headline of the news uh, the, head, the headline of the newspaper. <laughs> like what? They would write that as a headline. Amazing. But uh, um, Vadinho, I thought was a really interesting character because he's he's meant to be this sort of uh, sort of Aztec uh, uh, shaman, um, uh, but he looks more like a, a nightclub bouncer than a, than a <laughs> sort of Aztec sh- uh, Aztec shaman. So um, I I just thought um, very sort of 
sort of strange casting because he's he's a really big guy. He's got really big muscles, um, and he kind of just spends most of the film wearing this uh, wearing this vest. And um, you know, I kind of if you're going to cast a shaman uh, like an Aztec shaman, I I, I don't know some sort of wizened old man with a with a big straggly beard who was um you know sort of maybe sort of a slightly eccentric not uh not some sort of uh yeah sort of uh, uh muscle bound uh, bouncer and and even and even though they they make so many comments about how big he is and you would think that he would be a good fighter but he gets his butt handed <laughs> to him so many times in this movie <laughs> You yeah. think that he could hold his own in a fight, but he just gets beat on so many times, like three well, he's times. Okay. He's okay when he's sort of, you know, smashing down a door or something like that. But like when someone throws a, as soon as someone throws a punch at him or he comes up against uh, like a human opponent, yeah, he he, he just completely goes to pieces. He, he's uh, yeah, not somebody you'd want, um, you know, covering your back in a in a barroom brawl. And yet Tony is this uh, paleontologist. <laughs> Whenever he kind of falls into a fight, even before he becomes the Puma Man, he's kicking, he's kicking butt and taking names. Oh, I, I, the, the scene I enjoyed most with Tony is. Um... Obviously, we talked about um, Double Indemnity and how uh, sort of uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck have one of the great um, uh, flirta- uh, flirting scenes in, in film history. <laughs> the, the, compare that to the scene where um, <laughs> Tony, um, I've forgotten her name, uh, is it Jane, um, where he uh, where he kind of uh, flirts or basically, basically pulls Jane. It was just uh, um, um, unbelievable, unbelievable scene of ridiculous dialogue. I mean, just uh, nobody, nobody has... Uh, Oh, if only uh, talking to women was that easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I just fell out a third story window and I'm fine. <laughs> Do you think you should get us go see a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> Just, it's just insane. It's just insane. I mean, there's so much. Uh, there's some absolutely corking dialogue in this film. I mean, I, I jotted down one line. Um, I can't remember the. I can't remember the context now. And the con- you know what? The context probably wasn't important. But what's? Um, I think it's Vadinio says, uh, "How one sleeps is not important. How one wakes, that is important." I. I, I think- I have absolutely no idea um, what that what 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 the difference is between waking and sleeping is in in the point he was trying to make there. But uh, yeah, just one of many um, strange scenes and uh, and lines of dialogue that uh, crop up in this film. Yeah, and and I I think that like you, you mentioned you briefly mentioned the score, but the music for this is there. There's basically two themes. There is the uh, like. Uh, the the 70s like ad, generic action theme and then there's the puma man theme which they're both like really bad synth heavy uh, like 70s action style music yeah yeah the music is is just is just awful in the, in this film it just uh, bears no relation to um sort of really what you're watching um on the screen and um uh as you say the sort of there there is only two sort of themes and um by the end of the film you're really sick of uh, hearing both of them yeah and and i i think one of the, one of the most endearing elements of this movie is is the really bad blue screen or green screen whatever you want to call it the, the flying <laughs> sequences 
Yeah, Tony really doesn't seem to enjoy flying, but the way that uh, his arms are just sort of wobbling uh, wobbling around, um, I can only imagine, as you say, I can, it's obviously blue screen work. I can only think that, uh, certainly because of the budget of this film, he must have been on a, a very um, rickety uh, like rig when he was uh, being sort of dangled in front of that screen because uh, the way that his uh, legs and arms are sort of flapping around, um, he, he clearly, um, I, I think he's more, I think he's worried about his own safety on whatever thing <laughs> Winched, winched up on yeah and and one scene that that i noticed that that is just the pinnacle of ridiculousness is early on whenever or there maybe it's towards the middle whenever he uh captures one of cobras's henchmen and he's um like flying him around to get information and dropping him and then he event then he ends up like hanging him on a, a building and mm. then he just walks away in the air <laughs> Yeah, they kind of uh, they kind of just uh, sort of uh, just sort of stop bothering to uh, sort of uh, you know kind of make it work as a, as a scene there. They just oh that's that's clearly sort of uh, good enough and uh, you know what the hell with the rest of it. But uh, there was one scene um, that I, that really sort of stuck out in my mind, um, which was one of, I, I felt it was one of the it was one of the strangest. Um, the strangest interrogation scenes I've uh, I've ever I've ever seen, where um, uh, I think Jane's like pulled over in her car, and um, they've got uh, some somebody's got like an in car. I mean, this is nineteen eighty. Somebody's got like a an, a mo- like an in car phone which they're holding up to her head. Someone else has got a gun to her head. Though, although she's supposed to be under the control of like Donald Pleasance, who's the who's Cobras in this movie, um, so uh, you know, I'm kind of, and then uh, so it's like, well, he she's either under his power or not. Like, why does the gun need to be there? And then there's the whole business of these. He's got these kind of uh, plastic waxworks of of everyone's heads. Um, yes, every it, time that he uh, controls, he mind controls somebody new. There is a, there's a wax head of their image that appears in front of him, and it was uh, yeah it was it was just a really really strange scene. I I kind of I didn't really um under, I didn't really understand the I have to say the film had uh, had, had lost lost me at that particular <laughs> moment. I didn't quite understand uh, what was uh, what was what was going on there. Um and uh, the I think I think it's also worth mentioning the the outfits in this film are. <laughs> Oh, all over, or all over the place. Yeah, the the movie starts with uh, with Donald Pleasance as Cobras and and the girl and one of Cobras's random henchmen, and they're wearing these like black garbage bags. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way I can explain it. It's like these these black garbage bag suits. And there's no there's no reason for them to be wearing it. There's absolutely no reason. Um, uh, and then you know. later on in the in the movie, Cobra shows up at this meeting where he's brought together all these uh, important um, military or board leader figures, whoever they were, and he's wearing this this gold <laughs> this gold quilt that that reminds <laughs> me of like the uh, the end of the Rocky Horror Picture Show with. Uh, uh, Riff Raff and Magenta whenever they're wearing their alien suits. And that, that, that meeting is, is really strange because you've got all these sort of like world leaders or kind of like world military leaders like together in, in a room and. Like at his house. Like, yeah, of course we'll come to your house. Who, who are you? And, <laughs> and then they sit around and they just sort of discuss 
whether like being in a house is is normal for a meeting like this they don't talk about like i don't know world domination or like whatever the kind of nefarious plan is that that might be at play here they just sort of talk about like the the kind of this the the house as a as a sort of venue for a meeting um a, a really sort of scene of entire pointlessness but uh, i enjoy, i enjoyed it nevertheless yeah and there there's not there's barely any explanation of who these people are and you're not sure if they're under his control or if he brought them there in order to control them but it seems like he's trying to control them outside of the mask it it just it doesn't make any sense and then the puma man shows up and they have this fight scene with him jumping around and every every time he flies it like sometimes he flies and then sometimes he jumps around and it's it's always funny to me because the pose that he makes whenever he's flying is he has both hands out with his fingers shaped like claws Oh uh, yeah, it's um his his scenes his flight scenes are um I mean it kind of like at the beginning like the first because obviously he um like uh Tony doesn't realise that he's the Puma Man at the at the start of the film so um you can kind of sort of understand the ungainly way that he flies maybe in the first few times that he flies because he's he's trying to understand his this new power that he's got but by the end of the film you kind of expect him to actually sort of be you know flying in a in a more sort of confident um stylish way you know like say christopher reeve in uh, superman um, but no he's still sort of wobbling around arms arms and legs flailing um you know it's uh, it's it's a pretty uh, uncomfortable and uh, embarrassing uh, embarrassing uh, look and, well, uh, it reminds me like he's jumping around like if you ask a five-year-old to pretend to be a puma that's that's the <laughs> they make with their hands uh, in front of them like claws and that's how he decides to fly most of the time. Like, that's how he decides to fly whenever they have him, like, jumping on a trampoline. I, um, I could... his jumping, his bouncing flying. Cause he really has, like, two different types of flying. There's, there's the bad, wobbly blue screen flying, and then there's the trampoline jumping flying. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of um, I thought uh, after I after I watched this, I, I mean, it's uh, it is every bit as um, spectacularly bad as we're make, as, as we're making it sound. I thought I'd look up. I looked up the director um, to sort of see what else he'd uh, what else he'd done, and um, uh, I've actually seen one of the other films that he's done. He did a he did a kind of a horror movie in the late seventies, which was like an Omen ripoff um, called uh, Holocaust Two Thousand with uh, Kirk Douglas, and um, that is actually a uh, it's not as nutty um and it does have it is it is uh it's it's much better as a film than uh than uh the puma man and um it's definitely worth watching because um uh the kirk douglas um there's well if you've ever wanted to see kirk douglas um run around naked uh full frontal in a desert then this is the this is the <laughs> film to to watch uh for that um uh, but he also um he also did a, a film i've never seen but he also did a, a film which i've heard about called um in the 60s called operation kid brother which was a um which was a kind of 007 um pastiche movie starring 
starring Neil Connery, obviously the the brother of uh, Sean Connery, um, and the film's kind of like loaded with a load of um, of uh, actors who had previously been in different uh, James Bond films. So you've got like uh, mm-hmm. Miss Moneypenny, you've got uh, the guy who plays uh, M, um, and you've got the the kind of the baddie from uh, Thunderball uh, in the film as well. So he's got a kind of uh, the the guy Alberto uh, Di Martino um, has got a very uh, interesting um, sort of uh, film CV. So uh, uh, the Puma Man just seems to be another another eccentric and interesting uh, sort of uh, stop on his uh, on his uh, sort of cinematic journey. <laughs> yeah, and and one last thing that I want to mention uh, before we wrap things up is it it shows up at the beginning and then it also shows up at the end. Um, there's this, I guess it's supposed to be the Aztec spaceship, which basically just looks like the Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this this cheap miniature model that that has some flashing lights and little band, little parts of it that spin around. It's not it's not exactly Close Encounters of the Third Kind, is it? <laughs> yeah, not exactly. And I guess it it does make one other appearance because there, there's that scene where he first learns to teleport. Where, where he's supposedly able to uh, walk through the wall and figure out where the mask is, but he's gets trapped in this what he calls the nothingness, where it's basically just a bunch of background shots of London in uh, tinted red, <laughs> and one of the that flashes the different scenes, and and one of those flashes has that Death Star in it. <laughs> Yeah, I love the idea that nothingness was just basically like a major capital city in the world. You know, I live in London. It's uh, it was a it was a chastening moment for me to to realise I just basically live in nothingness. <laughs> okay, and, and what did what did you think about um, there? There is this uh, his friend, this uh, police officer, this London police officer that that he just kind of runs into every now and then that's almost kind of a comic relief. Um, yeah, I mean, it just was, uh, I, that was a really, um, I, I, I'm, I made a little note about that and I was just like, that's the, the, the weird scene in the van. It was just like, what, what was, um, you know, I mean, in a, in a film of like strange, you know, in a, a film of so many strange scenes, um, you know, that was one of the, that was one of the sort of the strangest. And, um, I don't know, there seems to be a sort of thing in, in these sort of Italian exploitation films where you, um, where they kind of like to have um, sort of scenes of um, sort of like broad, broad comedy just sort of inserted into the film as to sort of give you like a, a kind of like three or four minute breather from the rest of the film. Like, which, you know, they don't bear any relationship to kind of the, the wider plot or anything that's happening. It's just, OK, here's a little kind of funny three or four minute little skit that is like just operates on an independent basis to the rest of the film. Um, yeah, very strange. Yeah. It's like he he teleports in into this uh, police van in order to get the um the uh, sig the locator whatever it's called the 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 beeping thing yeah and then <clears throat> whenever he walks out of the uh, and then he just asks the guy to walk to slow down enough so he just walks out of the steps out of the vehicle <laughs> and then and then it cuts back to him and then he's ran into a fire hydrant and and he's like he shakes his fist at him <laughs> and Tony just kind of salutes him and walks off. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just um, yeah, it just doesn't really. Um, there's no need for that scene to be really be in, in the in the film at all. Um, to be honest, there's, there's there's not much need for many of the scenes in this film to be there, but uh, there they are nonetheless. And uh, you know, they're, they're they're enjoyable. You can you you can say that about them. They they might not necessarily make much sense together as a sequence, but uh, uh, in their own right, they're uh, they're they're fun enough to enjoy to enjoy and watch. <laughs> yeah, um, and and I. I mentioned it earlier, but uh, if you get the chance to watch the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of this, it, it's, uh, it makes the movie even better. Yeah, there's sort of one thing I, I kind of... Um... Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is actually, actually, there was, there's actually some, uh, professional interest, uh, for me in this film, because obviously it does have, uh, does have an exploding helicopter in, which I was, uh, I was, I was pleased to see. <laughs> and, uh, I can, I can, I can tell you now, it's definitely the, the first known, um, helicopter destroyed by, um, Aztec Puma God. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and possibly it will, it will, it will continue to have that accolade into, uh, the rest of recorded time. Yeah, and it also it's uh yeah I, I did I I forgot to mention that I, I was gonna bring it up because I I did notice it um and it, it's uh it's one of those where they they get around the uh, um the expensive blowing up a helicopter by making it, it they blow up a model <laughs> it switches to a model and and all the uh, the damaged helicopter scene is is once again that uh, that blue screen just uh um bad flying where they just rotate the uh, the image behind it yeah the, the the kind of the aerial battle between uh, the, the the puma man and the helicopter is uh, is is very uh is very str- is very strange defies the laws of physics at certain points where it's kind of uh, where sort of donald pleasance is sort of like he sort of bumps the puma man sort of twice in in close succession you just think helicopters can't move like that you know it doesn't um you know the, the laws of physics uh, sort of uh, are temporarily suspended there for this for the sake of the movie uh but uh you know we shouldn't, uh, you know, as a, it's it's just a really good, uh, it is a really good fun film. I really I really enjoyed it and um, kind of uh, kind of glad uh, I'd heard a bit about this. Uh, I'd heard a bit about this film before. I'd heard it was um, was uh, sort of a legendary sort of bad film. And uh, it's actually like the 29th. Um, it's like the it's in um, IMDb's like bottom hundred movies. I think it's like ranked at 29. And um, uh, I can see why it's there on one level. But you know what I. I don't think it really deserves to be there. I think there are far worse, far worse films than this. This, this is, this is actually an ent- bad as it is. It is an entertaining film. I wasn't bored whilst watching this, uh, watching this film, and uh, uh, I, I think a lot of people are, uh, are perhaps a little bit too harsh on this film. Yeah, it's bad, but it's, uh, it, it is ge- a genuinely fun watch. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not boring. <laughs> I, I will give it that. Uh, well, that that wraps up this episode of FilmWise. Why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online? Well, if you want to check out my blog, it's called uh, Exploding Helicopter. So if you go to um, explodinghelicopter.blogspot.co.uk, you'll find my uh, blog there for all the latest on uh, sort of movies with uh, exploding helicopters in. I'm also on Twitter, so you can find me um, at, uh, at cho- uh, Twitter um, uh, under the handle uh, ChopperFireball. All right, and I'd like to thank you for being a guest. I I uh, 
glad to have you on. And as always, I am Bubba Wheat, and you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat, and you can find uh, this podcast film-wise on Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and Podomatic. And as always, I like it if you like, favorite, subscribe, thumbs up. Give a review, just whatever whatever is available on however you listen. And if you'd like to know what we're going to be talking about on the next episode, go ahead and listen through to the end where I have a mashup trailer. Until next time. Mm-hmm.